folks. Uh, it's another episode of Mentioned in Dispatches here with the Armchair Dragoons. We've got a, a special guest tonight joining us. Mike is back, OJ's dad. Welcome, Mike. How you doing? I'm good. How about yourself? <laughs> We're doing doing all right here. Uh, Regimental HQ is still standing. That is a good thing. Uh, our special guest tonight, we brought Brian Train in here. How you doing, Brian? Hello. How you doing? We, we are interrupting his dinner out there on the left coast as we record this. <laughs> Uh, but we we've brought Brian in and and we are getting this is the point at which the season starts to get out of sequence and we start to you know the the numbers by which we've recorded these episodes is going to start getting screwed up because we're gonna we're gonna rush this one to release as quick as possible and in part uh, it, this is this is more current topic kind of stuff. Uh, we brought Brian in because he is one of the folks who has designed a game about conflict in Ukraine, and and I'm another one. And we reached out to several others about possibly joining us. Unfortunately, a bunch of the folks that that we were trying to get are all dealing with potential scenarios like this for their day jobs because while they may be published civilian designers or civilian war gamers, many of them also work uh, either directly or indirectly for the military and weren't available for this just totally understandable our intent tonight is not to try and assess the current state of the ongoing conflict. Uh, the reality is a moving target and it is going way too fast for us to try to keep up with. We don't know what we don't know. And and what you might be getting from the news or social media could be accurate at the moment. It could be changing by the minute. It may never have been accurate when it was reported in the first place. But what we have done is been involved in some conversations about the ongoing conflict and more importantly had looked at this conflict over the last i brian for you it's been like seven or eight years at this point right that's right yeah and and for me over a decade ago when i first started examining this as a potential conflict and so really what we're going to be focusing on is what were the game designs that we had done way back when we first did them what were some of the assumptions we made what were the the aims of those original game designs and based on what we've seen happen since then what's changed and 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 which of those assumptions have you know more actually potentially uh not necessarily come true but have proven more valid and which of the assumptions did we just completely screw up because there's some of those two and and so with that in mind um Mike, if you're okay, we're going to let Brian talk first because he's the special guest. And he's the one everybody's going to want to hear from anyway. <laughs> Brian, back in 2014, you did Ukrainian Crisis. It was later re-released, kind of expanded and re-released by Hollenspiel. And I think that was only like two years later, wasn't it? That's correct. Yeah. Um, it, talk to us a little bit about uh, the original Ukrainian Crisis design. What was it you were trying to do? Yes. with that game and, and what dimensions of the conflict were you trying to explore with it? Thanks. Um, <clears throat> so what I did with this game was this game was initially and literally designed in the middle of the 2014 crisis itself. Uh, so it was designed um, eight years minus two weeks ago on the very weekend of uh, mid-March when they had that referendum about Crimea you know, leaving Ukraine and joining Russia, and an overt Russian invasion of Ukraine in some degree seemed very likely at the time. So over that weekend, I thought, oh, 
well, I have a weekend. I should design a simple political military information warfare game on this crisis. And that's what I did in 48 hours. And on Monday, um, I uploaded a print and play version of the game to my website. And uh, about, I don't know, maybe about 56, 50 or 60 times more people who click on that site clicked on that site on that day and they saw, oh, it's a paper game. Oh, I have to download it and put it together. Oh, it needs dice. And so I don't know how many copies of the game are actually out there, um, but the print and play version of the game is, uh, it has been updated just a little bit, you know, clarified some rules and things and uh, is still available on my website for free. Uh, and there's been a noticeable uptick, of course, the last uh, few weeks of people uh, downloading copies of the game. And as Brent, um, Brent mentioned, um, uh, this was published in 2016 by Hollenspiel later uh, because of components. Uh, the, the components were a little bit nicer, you know, there's nicer art and uh, some better components allowed uh, a little bit longer game than the print and play version by a couple of turns. And they put it in a box uh, with another uh, well-known, a game I designed on another well-known conflict, the Little War, which is the one-week war between Hungary and Slovakia in uh, 1939, March 1939. That was because we had about 30 blank counters left on the counter sheet from Ukrainian crisis. And I hate waste. I told Amabel at the time that, uh, oh, I have this game that, you know, uses 30 counters. Um, could we, like, put that in there? And uh, they agreed. And then uh, they thought that they would never do that again because, of course, even though it did fill up the counter sheet, it needed another map. Uh, and oh. the map, you know, paying for the map art is the expensive part. So I don't think they're going to put two box, two games in one box again. But it was a nice uh, experiment. This is still uh, when they were getting just getting started. Yeah. Anyway, I'll just talk about the free print and play version, which, as I said, is, is still available on my uh, on my website, along with uh, a, a number of other um, uh, uh, free print and play uh, games as well on different topics. So I designed this over the, um, the over that very weekend. And I thought of it as sort of like a one-man game jam or, you know, an attempt to conduct uh, amateur journalism in the form of a war game. I have this thing on the Winkle about, uh, about how games can be a form of citizen journalism, games on contemporary subjects. And this was one of my first uh, sort of tries at that kind of, uh, at that kind of uh, idea. And so getting it into its basic form took me just a couple of days because it's a fairly simple uh, political military information game for two players. And it concentrated on the buildup and the resolution of uh, conflicts in those three spheres. So there's the there's the political sphere or diplomatic sphere. And then there's the information sphere, which encompasses everything from propaganda to economics and, and so forth. And then there's uh, the, the uh, military sphere, which is threats of kinetic action or actual kinetic action. Um, the point of the game was that an overt military invasion of the eastern Ukraine by uh, Russia was certainly possible. But it was not necessary at all for the Russian player to win the game. And meanwhile, the Ukrainian player's objective was to mobilize to defend himself, uh, suppress internal revolt, you know, by separatists, and to build a diplomatic coalition of allies to support him. And the currency in the game for all of these things 
was something called prestige. Um, it, it was kind of a catch-all concept that encompassed uh, a side's dominance, their stability, their resolve, having moral high ground on an issue, that sort of thing. And in the original version of the game, I compared it to the concept of having hand. So I don't know if you remember, there was a Seinfeld episode. It's the one about the Pez dispenser. And George is complaining in his relationship. He's saying he doesn't have hand, doesn't have any dominance. You know, it's uh, yeah. what he says doesn't go. Um, unfortunately, that illusion doesn't travel well outside North America. So I uh, dropped it from later editions of the game. But it's probably the only war game ever out there that makes a Seinfeld reference. <laughs> In the game, you know, the, the term prestige, it was, it was hard for me to articulate what this meant without referring to the, like, to a situation comedy. But the idea of prestige, the idea of, uh, of, of so much flowing from that general concept is really central, I think, to influence operations. And I dithered a lot about what to call this thing before I just settled on prestige because I had to pick up a word. Um, so there are, it, as I said, it, it reflects all kinds of different things. Uh, and there are occasions during the game when the players voluntarily expend prestige to get something they want. And this represents making deals for future concessions, negotiations, threats that are or not delivered, and that sort of thing. And there are two ways that the game ends. Um, one is if someone's prestige is driven down to zero at the end of any turn. And this signifies like a collapse of will to continue or resignation to the situation or conclusion of some form of you know, larger negotiations, um, or you reach the time limit, uh, you know, which is seven or eight turns. Um, and I also worked the idea of non-kinetic action and non-kinetic dominance into the combat system of the game itself. So in the game, uh, if the two armies uh, of, of the two countries actually engage each other, they, they have a choice of engaging in kinetic, asymmetric, or symbolic combat depending on whether they are regular or irregular forces and whether you're mixing types or not. The idea of symbolic combat, well, first of all, kinetic combat is, you know, it's, it's the usual, you know, ding-dong battles, and there's a chance for uh, spillover fire and collateral damage, you know, uh, to civilians. Um, yep. There's asymmetric, which is irregulars fighting regulars or regulars fighting irregulars. But symbolic combat was an acknowledgement that modern regular armed forces are so small compared to World War II, and they're expensive and they're so difficult to maintain compared to the mass armies of like World War II, that it makes some sense to use them in a way that you could characterize almost as near ceremonial posturing for combat. You know, it's, it's uh, something, it's like a threat, uh, you know, and, and using it primarily as a threat. But of course, it's a credible threat, but, but you, you're still trying to avoid kinetic combat. So, you know, the other kinds of combat end up with casualties, neutralizations, uh, civilian casualties, that sort of thing. But when two forces engage in symbolic combat, the only cost is in prestige, okay, which again, wins you the game, uh, but the material and human costs are, are very, very low. So th th that was kind of the point of the game was, was just to, uh, not to predict the outcome, because in historical terms, I suppose the game uh, would have been, I, I think of the game as historically it came out as a draw uh, and it ended in September 2014 with the adoption of the first Minsk protocol. Um, now that didn't resolve the, 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 uh, the whole Ukraine crisis because here we are again, you know, eight years later. 
Um, but it, it was a draw and kind of setting, you know, the dominoes up for next time. And uh, so there was there was that and just the idea that it wasn't necessary to go to war to win the game. And another major point in the game is that uh, other Ukrainian war games we'll be talking about tonight uh, that uh, other designers have done all included NATO units. And this is one point where I differed with other people. Um, because even in 2014, like even now, I think it was, I thought it highly unlikely that troops from any country that was a full member of NATO would want to be in a position where they'd potentially be shooting at Russian soldiers. Everyone believes that Ukraine should, you know, in 2014 and now, everyone believes it should be supported against Russian aggression. But it's still an open question as to whether, you know, it's, it's something that World War III should be started over. Those were the points I made in the game. Like a, an, an earlier example uh, for this game sort of thing was Millennium Wars Ukraine, which came out in 2003 from one small step. And that is an entirely military, entirely kinetic game. Uh, and whereas mine was sort of like, you know, you had the political sphere, you had the diplomatic sphere, you had the information warfare, you had all these things, you know, going back and forth. And combat modeling, uh, aside from those three types of combat, was really pretty crude. It was, you know, kind of buckets of dice, uh, but with different uh, outcomes, depending on the type of combat that you had chosen. And the symbolic combat thing um, was, uh, you know, was, was something that was new. It was an idea that I wanted to try out at the time. Now, that was 2014. Here we are in 2022. And as soon as things started to happen, um, you know, before Christmas, I mouthed off about you know, very publicly about how I would, what I was not going to write a 2022 scenario for this game. And yep. I meant it then, and I meant it now. Uh, I, I, I meant it then for two reasons. One is that at the time, you know, like many other people, I did not believe that it would come to this. Uh, second of all, so much has changed in the system, you know, in, in the situation, the general situation, the general context between 2014 and now that it would have required redesigning the whole game pretty much from the ground up. I could have used the same mechanics, but everything else would have to have been done over. Like the Ukrainian army in 2014 and the Ukrainian army of now, there's like no comparison between the two. And, uh, you know, I mean, we'll never know what quality the Russian army had in 2014, but, you know, we're, we're learning now. So, again, you know, I had no intention of making a 2022 scenario, and I said as much. Um, and, but I, again, I was quite confident, you know, at the time, that it would not come to this, you know, like an like an overt invasion. And in game terms of this game that I've done, Putin has done a table flip. He didn't play the diplomatic game, didn't play the information operations game, or at least didn't play it, you know, thoroughly. And now just gone straight to kinetic and just kind of upended the table. And so um, I was wrong, and I admit that I was wrong. But you know, I'm not a wizard. I can't see yeah. the future. <laughs> and uh, but. But I, I don't regret doing this game at all. It was a very interesting exploration of the problem at the time. And then, back then in 2014 and, and now, I, I didn't and I never have claimed any kind of predictive value for the game. Uh, it was just something that I wanted to work out that emphasized the kind of things that you don't always see in standard war games, you know, where I really kind of soft pedaled, you know, details and procedures about, uh, about combat. Uh, but emphasized uh, all the points that are leading up to uh, actual shooting. And they continue, you know, even as the shooting is going on, these processes still continue. Yeah. Over.
Yeah. I, I think trying to update the game for today, you mentioned the table flip piece. I think if you were going to try to update for today, there would need to be an acknowledgement that some of the players just aren't playing by the, the, the rules that you thought were important when you designed this thing eight years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right. So that's, I, I think that's definitely a big shift in, in what we're looking at there. So if Mike, any thoughts, any reactions? No, no, not at this point. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> That's did, you, did you, did you know this game, Mike? Have you ever no. heard of it before now? Nope. Okay. Nope. I'm looking at it right now on uh, um board game geek though. Yeah. Um, what about millennium wars? Yeah. Or have you, do you have experience of any other games about Ukraine? Any speculative games? No, not specifically about Ukraine. It, yeah. Not, not, not in, not since the breakup of the Soviet Union. No. Well, Brent, I should give you a turn and you should tell us about Orange Crush because yeah, we have I, never uh, talked about it. <laughs> so I, you, I have Millennium Wars Ukraine here. I have the original one. I don't have the 2014 update that OSS did. Oh, uh, I've got the old one too. Yeah. It's new with the new one. Uh, I don't know. Um, other than you could spend 30 bucks to find out to get a copy from OSS. I have a I have a set of the original six games that uh, one of the dragoons Banzai Cat when he moved about a year and a half ago was clearing out some of his older game stuff and a bunch of it he took down to the local game store and and sold or or swapped out for some newer games uh, to thin out the collection a little bit but he sent me his full set of the six Millennium Wars games. And I got him and I thanked him profusely and I put him on a shelf and I haven't touched him since. <laughs> it's just, I just haven't, I haven't had a chance. And, 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 and we're all shocked about that. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, it, I, I've, I've played plenty of other things. That's not one of them. Uh, but, but it was nice of him to send those. Uh, I just haven't had a chance to look at them yet. So Brian, you mentioned Orange Crush and... This thing, it's it, it's a little tough to talk about because so much of it has kind of snuck out over the years. Some of it intentionally, some of it not. And I think, Brian, you may have, uh, I, I, I recall having some conversations with you long, long ago about this very early on in its creation. But I, I, I'll be damned if I could remember sort of what year we were having those discussions. It was, I was a long time ago. And yeah, I've it, forgotten too. <laughs> It was before the Crimean, uh, oh, the yes. Crimean crisis. It was long before that. Yeah. And, and I don't recall if it was you or someone else was asking if the game could have been modified to account for the Russian operations in Georgia and South Ossetia back in 2008. Uh, that's, that, folks were asking the question back then. So Orange Crush was designed... In the the design started in 07, um, early early to late 06, early 07. And the original intent was to to update and upgrade something similar to the modern battles quad game engine. And Brian, you're pretty familiar with that one, I know, because we've talked about that one in the past. Yes. Um, I, I was always a big fan of the mod quads. And and for folks that don't know, SPI published two 
quad games in the late 70s. They were the Modern Battles Quad 1 and Quad 2. And the first one included two games on the Arab-Israeli conflicts. There was uh, Golan and Chinese Farm. And those were, were based pretty much on historical conflicts. They had two hypothetical ones in there. One of them was Würzburg, and it was the, the Russian horde comes over the inter-German border and runs into the Americans in Würzburg. The other one was Mukden, which was a Sino-Soviet shootout um, in in the middle of Asia around the city of Mukden. Mod Quad 2, which was actually the first one that I had played, was the one that I knew a little better, had another Arab-Israeli conflict game in there, and that was Jerusalem. And then they had the DMZ, which I know some of these have been updated and and re-released by Decision Games. I know the DMZ game has been. I'm not 100% sure about the rest of them. But DMZ, obviously, it's North Korea, South Korea. Pretty obvious what's going on there. The other two games in Mod Quad 2, one of them was called Bundeswehr. And, and Brian, I know we've talked about that one before. That, that was a rare war game at the time that was designed by a woman. Um, Jenny Mulholland did that one. It was also a rare NATO versus Warsaw Pact war game in that there's no American units in it at all. It's up on the North German plain, and it's the Germans and some of the British Army of the Rhine against the Russian horde and their East German cronies. Yeah. Bundeswehr was like the third war game I ever owned. My first was a copy of Tactics 2 that my uncle uh, sent me for Christmas. The second was some metagaming micro game, you know, those little science fiction things yep. in baggies. And the third was Bundeswehr that I bought in the folio because they they, uh, they sold them individually. It was quite a while before I had the, the quad itself. And I loved it. I loved that system. Yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. The The fourth game in Mod Quad 2 was Yugoslavia, and it was hypothetical battles around Zagreb that actually had three armies in it. There were the Yugoslavs, the, the Russians, and then the Americans with a couple of Italian units. So it was kind of a NATO force, but it was basically the Americans. What was interesting about the Yugoslavia game was, well, there were a couple of things really interesting about it. First of all, depending on the scenario, the Yugoslavs either sided with the Russians or sided with the Americans, depending on the scenario. They, they sided against whoever was invading with the other one. But there was also a scenario in there. And keep in mind, this was 78 or 79 when Mod Quad 2 was released. There's a scenario in Yugoslavia that is a Yugoslavian civil war, the breakup of Yugoslavia, and you you take the Yugoslav units and you partition them between Serb versus Croat. You split them in half, and the Americans and Russians side. I, I, we're saying Russians, Russians and Soviets kind of interchangeably, even though that's not technically accurate. I get it. Yell at me about it later. Soviets come in on the Serbian side. The Americans intervene on the Croat side, and you have this Yugoslav civil war scenario uh, about 11 or 12 years before the Yugoslav civil war actually broke out, which I always found kind of interesting in hindsight. Yeah, that game was designed by Phil Kosnett, who later was the American ambassador to Kosovo. Yes, um, uh, among other places where yes. it was you know, in the diplomatic service. And, and, you know, the guy was clearly designing something that he knew a lot about and, and saw a potential there that not a lot of other people were paying attention to at the time. <clears throat> so the mod quads were battalions. It was battalion scale units. It was kinetic combat. There wasn't a, there was a little bit of Chrome on the game, but not a lot. 
in part because those old quad games generally lacked chrome across the board. There's only so much you can do when you got a common set of rules across four games and you're trying to fit it on one 11 by 17 sheet of paper folded in half. So essentially four pages of standard rules, four pages of, of game specific rules with the scenarios in there. And again, Brian, you know the challenges of this because you did something very similar with Brief Border Wars. That's right. I, that was a very conscious attempt to uh, to bring back the quad. And, uh, I, you know, actually my favorite piece of chrome in the Yugoslavia game, besides the imagination, you know, shown in the scenarios, is the uh, goat propelled mortar unit. Yes. <laughs> yes. The, the mountain goat hauled mortars. Yeah. So uh, always good for a chuckle. So you, you had this fairly, it, it wasn't robust, but it was a solid battalion level system. The combat effects chart wasn't always the greatest because if you played on the, the mobile CRT instead of the active CRT, then you really just sort of pushed units around a lot like bumper cars rather than, than actually killing people. Um, but it was okay because it made for some very interesting maneuver challenges. So the I main, took that, hmm? the, the main problem I found uh, with that system was the the mismatch between frontline combat units and artillery units because both CRTs tended to have a lot of exchange results in them. It didn't take very long before you had all the combat units melting away. And your artillery park, which never, of course, had to worry about supply or anything like that, was still blasting away. So they didn't have limits on the amount of uh, artillery support a unit could have. So you'd have one battalion moving in supported by like seven battalions of artillery. And, you know, I don't think that was... uh, I don't think that was a deliberate part of the design, but that was always a weakness of that system, I'm afraid, is that there yeah. was no attrition of artillery. Well, counter-battery fire wasn't very effective, and and it was, I don't know how explicit the rules really clarified how much the artillery could shoot in support of multiple units to where, theoretically, by the letter of the law, you could shoot the same artillery unit in support of, like, four different attacks, which yeah. wasn't ever the intent. Well, the redesign that uh, Decision Games has done i mean some of them have been good quality some haven't but one change they made to the core rules was uh you're limited to two yeah yeah Yeah. so so there was mod quad one mod quad two and then there was sort of this this almost kind of a fake mod quad three sort of air quotes around that there were a couple of strategy and tactics magazines in the early 2000s that each had two games in the magazine that if you put those two magazines together you kind of had mod quad three one of those had um the the afghanistan and hungary games in them so it was hungary 56 and afghanistan 1980 or kabul 1980 i don't remember the exact term um i there was the Wurzburg pentomic one in that I've mixed them up. I apologize. There was Wurzburg Pentomic and the Kabul 1980 were in one game together or in one magazine together. And the Budapest 56 Hungary game and Angola in 87 were in the other magazine together. I think that's correct, right, Brian? That's that's, that's correct. Yeah. And the fifth, uh, the fifth wheel to the Modern Battles 2 quad, uh, the fifth wheel, and it was a double-sized mag wheel, was Berlin 85, yep. which is a game I absolutely love, uh, but I think that the modern battle system was really unsuited to urban combat. 
I, I had an idea the other day of just how to adapt that, uh, you know, with some mark, strength markers, you know, pretty simple addition, and that would probably make all the difference. But I'm busy working on other stuff right now. Yeah. Um, but still, cool. uh, 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 just an example of how flexible the system was. You know, it didn't always work, uh, but it did, you know, it worked well enough and people were really captured by it. Yeah. Yeah, it was it it was it was a fun family of games and and there were differences in the system from Mod Quad 1 to Mod Quad 2. They did learn some new things and that that was good. Once you got one you you could pretty much get if you understood one you could pretty much understand two and vice versa the the differences weren't that glaring the counters were slightly more attractive in one than two but that's because i like the silhouettes and other people like the nato symbols that's fine uh two had um it brought in the mechanic of the untried units so units started out face down with only a movement factor on them and a a unit symbol and once they engaged in combat, you flipped them over when you actually got their combat factors uh, in, in play. And so, Mike, this goes to some of the questions you were asking on Twitter that we'll circle back around to here in a minute, where how do you know the capability of your unit in combat before it actually gets in combat? And that was that was an interesting uh, idea. Now, the, the mod quads were not the first ones to do this. Panzer Group Guderian had done it. It was also used in Invasion America. And there were a couple of other games where, where SPI worked those in. So, so this modern battles system was a fairly robust system and, 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 and a very adaptable system in that it, it was used for games from 1956 up through the, the late seventies when, you know, those games were still contemporary. The ones that were published later in the two thousands were all backwards looking. We're all looking at, at uh, the fifties and sixties and eighties. And so those all looked back a little further. I was wanting to take that modern battle system and kind of move it into the present. And and at the time I was designing this, 2006, 2007, I'm looking at the present uh, being the mid, you know, the, the, the aughts, I guess is what we're calling that decade, uh, into the early teens. And so I'm looking at battalion scale counters. I did increase the map hexes to 10 kilometer hexes in part because weapons ranges have just gotten bigger and we didn't need artillery shooting, you know, from four miles, you know, for, from from a quarter of the board away, we, we wanted to keep that scaled down a little bit better. But ultimately, what I needed was a flashpoint in which an actual kinetic shooting war might happen. And there weren't a lot of those floating around in 2007 because everybody was on the coin train. I, Brian, something you know a, a lot about. And Mike, I think something that, that you've seen us deal with in in wargaming over the last 10 years as well there were a lot of counterinsurgency things because that's what's hot in the news right then that that was Iraq and Afghanistan as big news we're looking at Horn of Africa stuff going on the the coin series as GMT was publishing it was still a few years away but there were a variety of attempts at looking at some some counterinsurgency type games there weren't a lot of places where there were actual hot shooting wars going on yeah. And may, and the modern may, battle system really needed a hot shooting war. May I may I point out, Brent, I had been designing counterinsurgency games for 12 years already, you know, yes. in, in 2007. So it was a it was a long and lonely road to hoe. Yes. 
Yes. And, and, and people are still playing those games today. So one of the key things that, that I want to make sure people understand about the orange crush design is that it was intended to be a kinetic high intensity conflict kind of game. This was not intended for a gray zone kind of war or for the, the information and prestige kind of conflict that you were doing for, for the, uh, the Ukrainian crisis game, it, even the millennium wars game, which was a, a ultimately a shooting war game had far more information ops kinds of issues in it than I ever tried to put into orange crush. The Chrome that I was looking to add to orange crush, where I was wanting to expand and extend what the modern battles series could do. And, and looking at those for inspiration, there were, there were a couple of things I really wanted to do differently. One is the, the supply and logistics rules were pretty limited in the modern battles series and i wanted a better set of supply considerations in in orange crush and and again Orange Crush was intended to be the first of a series of games that I had in 2007, I called the next wars. Now this was about five years before GMT released next war, Ukraine, or they they had next war Korea and then started expanding with Taiwan and Vietnam and Poland and whatever else. At the time I was, I I called the first one next wars one orange crush of war in Ukraine uh, with a couple of others potentially on the drawing board. But I wanted, I wanted supply considerations to be a much bigger deal in that system. I wanted C2 to to be a much bigger consideration in that system. Command and control is pretty important in modern warfare and was absolutely missing from anything in the modern, in in the modern battle series. I also wanted it. I'm struggling with a good way to articulate this, but I wanted the capabilities of the units to be a little more uniquely reflected instead of just a straight I go, you go. And part of what's built into the system is this idea of sort of some some reaction and interdiction actions that can interrupt your opponent's turn as it's happening. And so you had certain units and certain capabilities that could actually interrupt in the midst of your opponent's actions. And that was something that, that I really wanted to, to be able to showcase in modern warfare that there there were ways that you could get inside your your opponent's decision cycle and and mess them up and so that those were some of the things that i was trying to do with the game system and and the the system came out fairly sound and and it was it took a lot of play testing to balance the scenarios but the system was fairly sound As the Dragoons proudly charge into their eighth season of Mentioned in Dispatches, we'd like to pause and thank those Patreon supporters who pledged at the regimental patron level. So a heartfelt thanks to Treb Curry, Staggerwing, Patrick Mullen, Mike Quigley, Hethwell Wargames, Patrick Garrity, Robert, Kevin Bertram, and Joseph Knoll for their support of the Armchair Dragoons and enabling us to bring you the best wargaming content we can. You, too, can sign up as a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash armchair dragoons. Before I dig too far into scenario stuff, um, Mike, Brian, any questions on game system itself? Well, I think it's remarkable and sorely needed that you put in supply rules and uh, command and control rules. Because as you noted, both of those are completely missing uh, from the uh, from the earlier ones, and I thought at some point 
you know, with some of the games, it might have something to do with the scale, you know, that it might cover just, uh, you know, maybe you don't need supply rules for something that covers 48 hours. But plainly, many of these games didn't do that. Um, yeah. And they were, so just for simplicity, I mean, I, I you know, I talked about the, the artillery units just banging away from beginning to end, you know, with, with uh, no attrition or no, no uh, supply problems at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's remarkable. I, I would note, though, that um, there was your this was your attempt to update the, uh, the you know, the mod quads or the, the modern battles to uh, system. And Joe, it seems to me, Joe Miranda has done that twice. Um, once with uh, the redesigns. Uh, well, I, I'm not sure if he's redesigned any of the folio games or if that was just Eric Harvey's work. Uh, but Joe did um, the Budapest and Angola games, you know, as, as you noted. Yep. Uh, he also did um, one for Kiev, uh, which was, and that came out in 2016. But again, that's a U.S. and NATO battle, you know, around Kiev. And that was a half-size game. It was paired with uh, fighting in Ulaanbaatar in, in Mongolia. Yep. Uh, but there, again, I don't believe he didn't bother to put in any kind of supply rules. Uh, or C2 rules. Um, instead, he had some uh, like a like a concept of what he called hyperwar, which is uh, I guess a lot of online combat, cyber, this and that, uh, this kind of thing. But still, command and control, you know, keeping your your forces together, that kind of thing, and logistics. Uh, I I may be wrong because uh, I don't have a copy of the game to to refer to. But it seems to me they were hand waved away. So the direction you've taken, I think, is the direction it should have taken. Part of what I was incorporating, again, kinetic action, not a lot of, of info ops, not a lot of uh, social media wasn't a thing in 2007, right? MySpace was still dominant at the time and you couldn't get on Facebook unless you had a .edu account. I think Twitter was like, what, a year old maybe at that point? So so these weren't major considerations in, in terms of the information sphere for combat. The, the C2 came into play where... The there were nationalities of the units. So we, we had the Russians, we had the Ukrainian, the Ukrainian rebels, the Ukrainian government. And, and I did have NATO in there. So Brian, you can make fun of me about that later. It's okay. Uh, but within each of those nations, there were also specific formations and those formations, the icons were color coded. And so the headquarters units were, ne were necessary for coordinating action across formations. If you were working within your own formation, you, you could gang up on units, no problem. So you could have, um, you know, two or three units gang up in a coordinated attack. But if you had units of different formations present, then you needed a headquarters unit there to help coordinate that action. And that was that was one of the ways that that the headquarters units affected the game. It wasn't the only way. It was just one of them. the so so that was something that 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 I wanted to to work into there. The underlying scenario for Orange Crush, and this is the part where a bunch of folks have said, "Oh my God, you nailed it!" and and. I kind of got this one prediction right, but the, what what's cool about it is nobody has gone back and tried to come up with a laundry list of predictions I got wrong, and so that's kind of awesome. Like everybody just goes, "Hey, you got it right," and 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 
that's that's great because people have skipped all the ones I screwed up. So the underlying scenario is, hey, disputed election in Ukraine and the Russians start to get a little frisky with wanting to support their preferred candidate in there. Um, so so a series of contentious elections and and they start to fracture and and competing protest marches turn into some street fighting, turn into, you know, the the army being ordered to, to kind of restore order. There was an underlying implication of Russian provocateurs being involved. And ultimately what you end up with are the Ukrainian government fighting the what I dubbed the interventionists because they favored Russian intervention. We refer to them in the current conflict as the separatists. And then I had NATO engaged as well. And one of the reasons that I had NATO as a player in the game was not just because I was trying to, you know, recreate the Cold War. One of the things I was trying to do was make this a game that could be played from a multiplayer standpoint. And Mike, I know you guys do this on Saturday Night Fights all the time, right? You, you've you got two or three people on one side coordinating uh, in the midst of a battle, but like Leipzig, you had what, four different nationalities present in the Leipzig game? Yeah, I think so. Four, four or five at least, yeah. Yeah, and and so you had a bunch of folks each taking their own nationality as a, as a part of the fight. Um, for this one, this one split nicely into four players. Uh, you could do it as three players where one player just took both of the factions on their side, but your four different players were the Ukrainian rebels, the Ukrainian government, NATO, and the Russians. And, and so it split very easily if you wanted to do a multiplayer game, or you could just scale it back down to a two-player. There's no problem. The... <clears throat> So, so that was the, the the underlying scenario that that this built out of. Now, at the time, I'm projecting into the future. We had not yet had the street protests that resulted in the overthrow of the the Ukrainian government, which then resulted in the Russian counteraction of seizing Crimea and and you know having this air quote referendum to for Crimea to join the Russians, and then the Russians roll into to. to Donetsk and Luhansk can start issuing Russian passports to anybody that speaks Russian so that they can then go claim we're protecting Russian citizens. Well, yeah, but they weren't citizens until six weeks ago when he gave them a passport. Uh, and so, Brian, I think part of what you were doing was you were dealing with current events. You weren't necessarily projecting to the future so much with, with Ukrainian crisis, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I actually haven't done all that many speculative games uh, in my career. So I'm I like designing on contemporary things, but uh, I, I try not to get too much into, you know, even potentially the prediction racket. Um, yeah. But it's interesting to to create these these sort of problems and explore them and see where they might go. But uh, again, you know, uh, all models are wrong. Some models are useful, right? Yeah. <laughs> One of the other things that happened with Orange Crush is it it doesn't cover the entirety of Ukraine. We were talking about this a little before the show. 10 kilometer hexes, you would need a bed sheet to cover all of Ukraine. <laughs> and 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 that just wasn't going to happen. Uh, so this is way over on the western edge of Ukraine, up against the Polish border. And I needed the Polish border there because I needed an entry point for the NATO units. Now, one of the other things you'll notice, I mentioned NATO units. My NATO units in the game do not include the U.S. at all. They are a non-factor in this thing. And again, think about when I was designing in 2006, 2007, when I was first putting this together, the U.S. was a little distracted. Right. We, we were a little busy fighting two other counterinsurgencies. And so there was an assumption that the Americans could provide some strategic level assistance, but we're not in a position to put boots on the ground. 
And I'm so not the even sure. Huh? I'm not even. I'm not even sure what was in U.S. Army Europe in, at that time. Was were there yeah, many it, major combat units even? So there were a couple of brigades, but even at that point, some of those things were being used to rotate through the Middle East. Yeah. So the the NATO force that is present was the the great thing about it is the way the scenario was built is stuff goes sideways in Ukraine and you don't have a lot of time to react to it. So you sort of grab who's available and off you go. And so it's built around a Polish brigade and a British brigade, and then a handful of stray units that happen to be available. So there's a Danish support battalion. There's two battalions of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. There's just sort of some stray NATO units that were kind of thrown in there under the storyline of, hey, who do we got? (laughs) And, and could pick up and send quickly. And so, again, most realistic thing, probably not. But, you know, it it, it worked for the, the narrative that I was building back in 2007. Folks have asked about updating this thing for use today. A couple of things. First of all, I don't have the current area where the conflict is happening mapped out. So, so you're, you're creating an entirely new map because the Russians aren't anywhere near where this takes place on, on my map. The other thing is the order of battle was built back in 2007 from 2006 open source information. That's 15 years out of date at this point. The Ukrainian army is significantly overrated in, in Orange Crush. It, it has way more credit for uh f- for stronger units and and units that I'm not sure even exist anymore there are armor formations in there that I don't think the Ukrainians could field if they tried similarly though I think the Russians are dramatically overstated in the game as well um and then the separatists are far more organized than they ever proved to be the the separatists are almost organized as kind of their own separate field army when in fact it's a lot of partisans and snipers and irregulars and not a lot of organized field units. Could it be updated for use today? I mean, you'd have to completely rebuild the orders of battle. And at that point, you'd have to completely rebalance the scenarios. I think the rule system is sound and works for high intensity conflict. I don't think the rule system supports a lot of what we're seeing right now, which is a lot of standoff attacks, a lot of info warfare, a lot of bad command and control. But we have yet to see an actual pitched battle between units, uh, in large part because the Ukrainians haven't fielded any up to this point. Um, None that we've seen any reports of. And so, again, I I don't want to get into describing current events and speculating on that. I'm only using that as a reference point to say that what I designed 15 years ago, I don't think has a ton of utility now. I think 15 years ago, it served an analytical purpose, much like the professional community likes to talk about analytical wargaming, and that it creates possible futures to help identify things that matter, but not necessarily any predictive value. So at that point, Mike, I think this is where we start to get into some of the questions you were asking on Twitter the other day and sort of what you meant to ask versus what people ended up answering. Tell us a little bit about what you were trying to ask, and then we'll talk some about sort of where that conversation went. Yeah, so what I was originally trying to ask was if three weeks ago somebody had built a game or a scenario that said the Russian army would absolutely do everything wrong that they could possibly do in in an invasion of Ukraine, would anybody have believed it? And that was the gist of the question, right? You know, with a kind of a follow-up of, but we're seeing this today. How can a game designer build something like that and then convince people that, yes, this is, 
this is a realistic scenario. That yeah. that was the gist of it. And kind of the way it, it evolved, though, was, you know, people were taking it from the historical view and not the futuristic view. Yeah. Yeah. And so essentially what you're asking without trying to put words in your mouth, but I think part of what you were asking is sort of how how wide are we willing to accept the assessments of competence of the units in the game? Are we willing to accept the fact that there may be complete, utter incompetence floating around out there in addition to very skilled, very competent participants, you know, actors within the game context? Uh, Is that within our willing suspension of disbelief or is that something that we're going to look at and go, eh, it never happened and just sort of blow it off? Right. I think I think the answer to that probably lies in your personal record of service in our, the armed forces. Because <laughs> I mean, you've served. Uh, I've I, I've served. You've served more than I have, longer than I have, and you've you've seen more and done more. But uh, I think we both have a healthy appreciation for chaos and incompetence. And I love building that kind of stuff into my games, Um, uh, especially the chaos and incompetence that the player has to struggle against in their own forces. Uh, If nothing else, just to make people mindful uh, yet again of how things can be screwed up. But uh, your 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 normal uh, your normal is there such a thing as a normal war, war game player anyway your 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 statistically average war, war game player uh, you know probably doesn't have that kind of level of appreciation or personal experience of of, of chaos and incompetence um, and uh, is already used to a position of near godlike omnipotence in control and power and observation. I, you know, I think, Brant, I may have, you and I may have joked about this before, is that in the fullness of time, when we get completely saturated with drones, cameras, satellites, uh, all this kind of stuff and real time, you know, computing uh, and analysis, real life battle may begin to approach the level of, of control and omnipotence and vision that you see in a in a simple war game but uh, not before yeah and, and and i dare say the the war game guys probably still doing even better simply because they're making all the decisions out of one mind instead of that that inevitable poor interpretation along the way that some subordinate's going to make somewhere. Um, Mike's been a few years in uniform also, and so he has seen some of that chaos on, on his own as well. So... Uh, yeah, it, and, and like I said, it, it was really just more, like I said, and, and, and Brent knows, you know, I, I sent some of that to some of the professional um, war game designers that, that do it for the military or, or in, into the, that, that section, you know. But, you know, so part of it is how do you convince those type of folks that this is plausible, you know, that, that this is really something that could happen? I mean, I look back at, at I play a game, uh, um, um, World War I, um, Darrell Craig, right? And, and they've set up some conditions in there of how the Italians have to operate and how the Russians had to operate early in the war. But those are all historical based. So it was really just how do you get into that, getting people to believe it in, in the modern context? Yeah, I, I think there's there's a couple of things, especially on the professional and practitioner side, where although we know and understand and recognize that, that there are some morons out there, right? Every unit's got a designated moron. They pick them up at CIF when they draw the rest of their equipment. They also get their moron issued to them. 
everybody's got one. Leroy Jenkins. Yes. Yes. Everybody's got one. You probably got them on the hand receipt, right? You you signed for four tanks and you know all you know you, you've got your four tanks and your sixteen radios and your whatever else and your platoon moron. Like he's he's on the hand receipt. <laughs> I, well, well, here, here, here's a prime example. This tweet just came out within the last few minutes. The Ukrainians captured six T-80s today yes. from a single brigade. Yeah, Captured, yeah. not destroyed. They captured them. <laughs> well, it, but I think you – know, It's it, like how, how – you know, and, and think about the traffic jam that you're seeing there around Kiev, right, and, and, the, and the utter lack of, of logistic support. Um, I, I found a – Somebody had sent out something on Twitter on Friday. Came from War on the Rocks. It was talking about feeding the bear, and it was talking about Russian logistics and or lack thereof. And it pretty much said, once the Russians get about 90 miles away from their logistics heads, they're going to be in big trouble in supporting their units. And that's what we're seeing, right? Yeah, yeah. that article so came out. Some railhead further in because so much of their higher level logistics was railroad based. Yeah, that article came out a few months ago, and I've been making reference to it. And frankly, that article was part of the basis of my belief that they, you know, that they simply would realize that it was far more productive just to put stuff on the border and make threatening motions with it uh, mm-hmm. than to actually try it out. Um, yeah. No, we'll see. Yeah, end of so, November is when that came out. Yeah. yeah. So, so, Mike, am am I correct in remembering that those T-80s that the Ukrainians have been capturing, they were abandoned, right? Didn't the the crew just said, "Fuck it, I'm hitchhiking home" and just left? I, I it looks that way. Um, there's not a whole lot of details on it. Doesn't look like, but you know, they were all from the 200th uh, Motor Rifle Brigade. It looks like. Okay. Which I saw somebody pointed out that's a fifth of their T80 BM BVMs for that brigade. I saw a newspaper story that claimed that uh, a lot of them, uh, like like some vehicles, have been captured, but with holes punched in the gas tanks, so that the, you know the, the the Russian soldiers, you know, were kind of risk averse anyway, were in a sense sabotaging their own vehicles. Wow, the, no, I the that, so. um, Pentagon's put that out. Yeah, yeah, that's where they're, that's where they're making those statements. And the the other thing is the tactics of all. Now, I guess we weren't going to really talk about about tactics, but just like you can see how their tactics have degraded too. Uh, you know, even beyond the sort of battle drills that we learned to to examine and mock. You know, back in the days of the Soviet Union. Well, so I I, I didn't want to spend a ton of time trying to parse through what's actually happening in real time. And again. Part of that is from the time we record this to the time it gets released a couple of days later, plenty of this could have changed. I do want to to revisit a couple of the the things that we are seeing, though, going back to, to Mike, some of the stuff you were bringing up of how do you account for these things in the game? So how, how do you account for the, the incompetence of the 40 kilometer long traffic jam? And here's something that I will say. A lot of folks are going, Ha ha, those Russians, what a bunch of morons. The 507th Maintenance Company got caught in a traffic jam, and that's how they got ambushed and Jessica Lynch got captured because they couldn't read their map right side up, right? Now, now, whatever other 
parts of that story around the 507th come out, you know, come out later and maybe misremembering or underplaying or overplaying. The bottom line is you had a U.S. maintenance company get caught on a convoy operation in very narrow streets in a congested area where they weren't properly reading their maps and weren't doing whatever other necessary security measures they should have been doing. And, and they got shot. And really the only big difference between what happened to the 507th and what's happened to that giant Russian 40 kilometer long traffic jam that people are calling a convoy is, is the Ukrainians haven't shot it yet. And, and I'm saying haven't shot it yet as we are recording this. By the time it releases, it could either be cleared up or shot or still sitting there like any of those things are possible. But to say, ha ha, those Russians are all screwed up. I ain't the only ones. This has happened to other well, people too. I think there's a difference though, right? Is because a lot of what we've been seeing, you, you just look at it and say, was there even no security? Was there no attempt at it? The, the problem was, is their basis of going in was the Ukrainians were going to welcome them with open arms. Yeah. And yeah. that's the difference between the 507th and what we're seeing today. There's just doesn't appear to be much, much of operational security at all going on. Yeah. There, there appears to be a lot of basic soldier level skills that are not being exhibited by the Russian forces that, that indicate a lack of field craft that I think a lot of people would have expected to see by an ostensibly modern, well-trained army. And Brian, this goes back to chaos and incompetence are one thing, but but basic field craft is just knowing how to do your job. And there doesn't seem to be a ton of that. Yeah. I, I think that actually uh, some of the things we've just been discussing here, if someone was designing a game you know, about the situation as it is now, uh, it simply wouldn't appear just because the way most civilian, you know, uh, game designers, they, they just hand wave away the logistics and they don't like to deal with, you know, incompetence and chaos and things like that. Heck, you know, they, they can barely tolerate a random events table. So yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's statistically likely that you wouldn't see a really serious exploration of that. Uh, if I were doing something like that, I would put in maximum variability in anything and everything where I possibly could. And, you know, maybe when somebody finished playing the game, they might be a little angry, might be a little frustrated, but they could blame it on the brakes, you know? Okay. Yeah. So in this game, my logistic system was good, but you know, my troops tactical competence rating was really low or, you know, you play the game another time. That is if you ever open the box again and you do well on several of these indicators. And so you think, oh yeah, okay. I've learned that it's good to have important logistics. It's good to have good field craft. It's good to have good communications, all these kinds of things. But, you know, but there has to be that kind of variable. There has to be a panel, you know, think of a panel full of knobs, you know, that you can twist uh, and, and put up and down like that. Uh, and there have been attempts to design such games. You know, it's sort of like the grand tactical and operational level. Uh, one brave attempt since we were talking about SPI earlier was combined arms, you know, a game that came out in like 1974, 1975. Uh, yeah. A game that people hated because it was generic. You just had these generic green and brown counters, but it covered situations from before World War II to modern day uh, from all kinds of angles. And, uh, you know, it was a very brave attempt. And, you know, thinking of something like that, that can kind of emphasize to players the importance of things other than having a flashy gun, you know, uh, or saying, oh, yeah, hey, that's the one, that's the Armada. You know, uh, I saw that a picture of that one in a parade. That's uh, got to be some tank. 
you know? Yeah, yeah. And, well, and, I, I, I kind of propose, you know, in, in that whole Twitter feed discussion, you know, maybe you needed two games, but, but as we were talking about this night, I'm thinking if, if you were to build a game based off of what we're seeing today, and, and as we said, you know, we don't know what the, what the future holds, but you would almost need a standard combat game, a logistics game, and a coin game all in one, right? Yeah. <laughs> just, to, yeah. just to literally accurately simulate what we're seeing going on. Well, and, and yeah. something that today's information-heavy environment has shown us, and, and Brian, you guys did this with a distant plane. One of the things that happens in today's military environment is that you have very micro-level engagements that have very macro-level effects. And so you have these platoon-level shootouts that can have gigantic, wild, strategic-level swings in public opinion, public support, uh, some sort of, of strategic reinforcement of certain things that that you run into a scaling issue of at what scale do you expect actions to happen in the game? Because those little bitty platoon level shootouts are fly specs on a national sized map that covers the entirety of Ukraine, but some of those effects may affect the entirety of the map of Ukraine. And, and, you know, so Brian, I'm sure that was one of the headaches you guys had, you know, designing a distant plane or working on Algeria, similar things that there weren't a lot of large scale battles that happened in any of those conflicts. Yeah, you're right. It's a question of, of altitude, you know, and how far back you can step. Uh, and you're right, you know, when you've got a situation where there are very few actual, you know, battles like that, uh, then, you know, you can have a, a small a small skirmish can have a huge effect, and by the same token, you can have an enormous long term uh, political or economic effort that involves thousands of people and billions of dollars, uh, and it all just gets wasted and has no effect on the conflict at all. You know, and for uh, you know, for examples of that, you look at the at the Seagar you know report uh, from Afghanistan. And how many billions were wasted in these non-kinetic things that didn't affect the situation at all? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I, I want to go back to the idea of sort of that variability in in the levels of competence of the actors in the games themselves. And I want to go back to it because I think there's an important point there from the professional and practitioner side that the hobbyists might not ever see, and that is. Part of this is if if you're using these things as training and learning tools to develop your force, you can't build in any level of incompetence on either side for two reasons. One, if you build them in on your own side, despite the fact that we know there is no shortage of morons floating around the military, every single military has plenty of them. The The challenge you will run into in building them in on the friendly side is that if if the friendly force does get their butt kicked, they completely brain dump any attempt on the part of the, the referees to coach or train lessons learned from the conflict because the friendlies will, will simply point to the incompetence and go, well, if it wasn't for them, we'd have done fine. Our plan was perfect. We didn't have any other flaws. It was just that one moron lieutenant who read his map upside down that cost us the entire exercise. 
And that's not really true. That First of all, you have to account for the fact that you've got a moron and your system should be resilient enough to absorb the fact that there's a moron out there and you should still be able to fight through it. But there were probably other things that you did do wrong that were in your span of control that you still screwed up and still cost you that mission. And, and by providing a built-in scapegoat, you give that that friendly unit the ability to sort of ignore the lessons they should be absorbing. And that's not a good thing. Right? You, you need to learn those lessons. The flip side of it is, if you have an incompetent enemy built into the game, then you're not providing the toughest possible challenge that you could be providing to the unit that is supposed to be training and improving their level of proficiency. And and so you want the toughest possible opponent out there because ideally, and you guys both know this from having been in uniform, you want your toughest possible fight to be the one with laser tag, not the one with real bullets, right? By the time you get to real combat, you want that to seem a lot easier than the really tough thinking hard-nosed opponent that you've already practiced against however many dozens or or you know hundreds of times back at home station or at your local training facility uh, rather than your toughest possible opponent being the one you actually face in battle uh, so, go ahead brian yeah no i just i, I, I was kind of done i was gonna let y'all run with it <laughs> no i i completely accept your logic brand I, I you know i have thought from time to time there is a tendency to idealize blue you know and uh and say oh well you know we want to see how things are going and how they work when everything is perfect you know and because inevitably as they go through the play of the game there will be imperfections that arise even when you don't build these kinds of things into the game and certainly you know you don't want to build a straw man of an enemy i mean that's uh, that's that's ridiculous i've always argued against that kind of thing and uh, it seems to me that, you know, we've got a massive case of uh, underestimation, you know, going on and um, underestimation and miscalculation. I, yeah. I, I, I like it to go into one of our local high schools, uh, boys or girls basketball games at times where sometimes, you know, these kids are really good. They're a lot better than what they show up on the court. And, and part of it is they're playing a, a team that's really bad. And it's almost like they're playing down to their level, right? That's what you don't want to do in, in some of these games, especially on the professional level, I, I think yeah. is where you're going with that. Right, Brian? That, that you just don't want a dummy for an opponent. Otherwise, oh, absolutely. you're going to be training dummies, you know. Um, no, and that's a problem in a lot of war games, too. You know, it's a, like video games. I see it in video games where, you know, the enemy is just this, you know, blurry collection of pixels that you just gun down. And uh, it it doesn't help any of us, you know, to to create a straw man enemy, um, you know, even outside of the professional realm. Uh, it does every side a disservice. Um, and just to dismiss one side as, oh, well, they're pure evil. You know, who would ever, you know, want to uh, right. play pure evil or anything like that? You know, because, you know, in this game, like in a distant plane, somebody's got to play the Taliban. Um, but the, that's the thing, you know, there are people who want to be the Taliban and, you know, this is how we use these games to maybe come to an understanding, uh, maybe not why, but, but how, and what is important to them. If we can't understand their, their, their basic motivations, we can at least understand what they're motivated towards doing or not doing. Uh, otherwise we're really um, you know, we'll just get blindsided like I did, you know, last week. Well, I think, again, focusing on the professional side here, I think going back to the ways in which the pros 
use wargaming differs significantly from the way the hobbyists do, where the hobbyists are just looking to, to enjoy the game and possibly learn something from it. The the pros have very real world considerations that they're they're looking at there. And among those very real world considerations, one of them is the idea of the analytical tool that is is designed to provide them some insight with what kinds of things are important going forward. Hey, based on trying to wargame this thing out, we realize that logistically we can't get from here to there without a significant change in our supply status, or we need more supply routes, or we need more supply equipment, or what it, we need more supplies, period, whatever it might be. As and, a you more, and, and you need more security along the route. Yeah. And so, so this goes back to, it's not trying to be predictive of here, if we do these things, then here's our positive outcome, but rather trying to be instructive in these are the things that matter. These are the things that are important. And we've observed them being important because when when fighting through this specific scenario, we found this to be a problem for ourselves as a for instance. And so on the professional side, again, it, it is a little different. And, and I don't want it to sound like we only care about the professional side. Side, not the hobby side, because there's certainly room for hobbyists to explore these conflicts through these interactive tools that we call war games and gain a greater insight into what's going on. The difference is that a bunch of us sitting around doing some beer and pretzels on the weekend kind of helps us make sense of what we're seeing on the news, but we're not being asked to figure out what sorts of lethal versus non-lethal support we can provide to somebody in the midst of the fight actually happening right now. And so there are much higher stakes and greater consequences for the pros that may be looking to these these tools to help gain insight into that conflict. And, and I think that's an important part of the wargaming world that certainly the Dragoons have tried to speak to over the years that, that we've been around, but that I think sometimes the hobbyists don't fully appreciate in the way in which those tools can be used by the pros. Well, and, and it's part of the other thing that we've run into at times with hobbyists too, right? When we're doing some of these historical scenarios, there's a side that, that has no chance of winning. And historically, cool. it's accurate, but some people just can't wrap their heads around that. What do you mean they can't win? And, and the purpose isn't to win. The purpose is, can you do better than what was historically done? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's kind of you know the same thing is the hobbyists, they, they don't think about a lot of those other pieces that, that you just talked about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you can make a balanced game out of an unbalanced military scenario, right? The Texans aren't winning at the Alamo. The, the math is not in their favor. They don't have enough bullets to shoot all the Mexicans that are surrounding the Alamo. So, so the right. Texans aren't winning, but can you make an enjoyable, balanced game out of how long can they hold out? How many Mexicans can they take with them? What can what what can you accomplish within the constraints of the victory conditions that that allow the Texans to win the game, even though none of them walk out of the Alamo? In in the real world, the Texans lose the game a hundred out of a hundred times because they're all dead. You know now. Right. Now that's that battle, not the wider war. The Alamo inspires a, you know, there's the mythology around it. Got it. But the, that that's one battle in a longer war. But if the game only covers the battle, that's all you can do, you know? Mm -hmm. so, um. that, that's an interesting question, Brent, you know, is how we define victory uh, in, in any and all of these games. 
Um, you know, as I said, in, in my in, in my Ukraine game, uh, you know, if the game ended, if nobody crashed out, if nobody zeroed out in prestige uh, after the, the game was finished, you uh, totaled up your prestige. And uh, depending on the point spread, that was the scale of your of your victory. Um, and if you had played combat turns, you know, if there was an over invasion, uh, then you got points according to what land you held. Because I had an area movement map of the eastern two-thirds of Ukraine and was color-coded by the percentage of Russian speakers in it. So that, uh, like, Donetsk was, uh, you know, a very high-scoring area because of the preponderance of uh, Russian speakers there. So that the, uh, you know, the Russian player would be motivated, or both sides would be motivated to keep it or to keep control of it. Um, so what was the, so now granted you had different scenarios in Orange Crush, but what did you uh, specify for victory there in your game? So the, the victory conditions, depending on the, the specific scenario being played, again, kinetic focused game was a mixed mismatch of dead enemy units and specific uh, key geographic objectives that you were trying to hold. So you would get victory points for holding on to a certain number of towns or the key city hexes of Lvov because that was the center of the map. That was kind of the geographic center of gravity there. Um, or you would you would pick up victory points for you know put putting enemies in the ground. Um, you know there's no point in being delicate about it. You're trying to kill the other guy. But again, mine was more of a kinetic warfare sort of game now one thing that i did have in the game that that is different that i've not really seen too many other people try to do and and it took a lot of refinement to get to where it wasn't overly clunky the way it was happening the, the way it was built but we did have civilians present in the game and this is something that, that some people are probably clutching at pearls right now there were a hand for specifically for some unoccupied towns, so towns that during initial setup did not have any military units in place in them. There were civilian counters that went into the game in in a face down status, and during the game were flipped face up that uh, indicated uh, a lean towards one side or the other. So you'd flip them. Uh, the, the civilian counter just had a little stick figure on it. You'd flip them over and that stick figure's background was either orange or yellow, depending on which way they were leaning for either Ukrainian government or Ukrainian rebel, the, the, the separatists, the, the interventionists in the game parlance. And while they had no real combat effect, having unfriendly civilians on your supply lines interrupted your supply lines. That, that interdicted your supply. That cost you control of that hex for the purpose of, of victory conditions. You could go in and shoot civilians at a victory point penalty to push them out, or you could try and move them out using other assets in the game, either some card play or your your support battalions were sort of a catch-all that, that incorporated supply and transportation and medical assets and resupply assets and repair assets and whatever else that that you could sort of use your support battalions to kind of move the civilians around by transporting them to other places without having to shoot them or chase them off that way um so so you did have the ability for civilians to have a very real impact in the game um, yeah that was my next question <laughs> is how you reflected that kind of civilian population uh, and MSR, you know, those kinds of things in the game. Yeah. Good, good show. Quite frankly, they they were primarily, this is going to sound crazy, but they were primarily an annoyance to the kinetic operations. 
But when the focus of the game was on the kinetic operations and not on how do you be nice to the civilians, that's really what they were there to do. And that's not to in any way minimize or dehumanize who the civilians are. That was simply trying to be reflective of the focus of the commander in a hot shooting war that isn't necessarily prioritizing be nice to the civilians. It's prioritize and kill bad guys, take all of mine home. Yeah, no, and that's quite appropriate, you know, but uh, the general run of games I design have a, a different focus. And you know, yeah. that's fine. Fair enough. Yeah. And and so there were civilians present, but they were there to serve a particular purpose that was not the focus of the game. It was, again, simply trying to reflect the reality that there's civilians present on the modern battlefield. And it does cause you to have to change how you do your kinetic planning to to account for the fact that they're out there. Um, and that's that's what I was after that 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 was we we jokingly talk about design for effect that was the design for effect that i was going for there um uh and and again i i can already feel the pearl clutching coming from certain corners of the world but that's that's what i was after you know and and, and it wasn't I, it wasn't sorry rex it wasn't peace gaming <laughs> well i think you know your audience and your audience knows you by now um yeah Probably <laughs> anybody that's still listening to, to the podcasts at this point sort of knows what they're in for with us on them. We are approaching and, you know, we're, we're hour and 20 as we we're recording this. Once I, I edit out me saying um a bunch of times, then we'll probably save 10 minutes. But as we start to wrap things up, looking at what we had designed then and and some of those assumptions and how well those assumptions might have been carried forward brian you've talked about essentially one side in your game did a table flip like they they just ignored the rules and played their own game i think that's that's a fairly accurate summation of what's what what's happened in using your game to look at what's going on now yes in terms of the assumptions you were making at the time you were designing it, I don't know that anybody saw what's happened today as really being in the cards other than an extreme outlier scenario, though. Is that is that fair to say? Yes, um, because I thought at the time, you know, a couple of things might happen. You know, either the Russian might see, you know, this is 2014, you know, the Russian might see that they're uh, losing badly on prestige and they just figure okay well i'm not going to throw in the towel i'm just going to roll the dice on a military invasion or that they may be sort of reverse provoked into a, an automatic russian military response uh if ukraine for example wanted to do a violent crackdown if uh large parts of the country were riddled with pro-russian irregular units and they want to you know have a sustained campaign to uh, eliminate them and cement their control of the country. And so the um, the Russians see this melting away on them and then they're provoked into it. I, I could see it happening either way, um, but the structure of the game was such that it was possible, uh, but there was nothing in the game that was really pushing you towards that kind of thing, unless the game itself had reached a state uh, that, uh, you know, where you as the player 
you know, the putative role playing the leader would see that as a viable step. I guess the the question that I have in my mind, going back to when you were designing it and projecting forward to where we are today, was was what has happened today even possible under the construction of the game as you had built it eight years ago? Allowing for the changed circumstances of the Ukrainian army? Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's possible, but it, in, but engaging in it in game terms, engaging in that means that you've already lost the diplomatic game. You've lost the information battle. And, you know, the only thing you have left is, is military. You have, a, you have the kinetic option. It's, it's, it's left. And, you know, maybe it's debatable as to whether, you know, Putin seriously played the information warfare game or not. Maybe he did, you know, with the long lead up and the demonstrative, you know, out of barracks, back into barracks and economic threats and things like that. Um, But it seemed to me that uh, he must have felt he ran out of options, you know, and combined with, you know, a mental um, underestimation of, of Ukrainian resolve and capability. Must have gone ahead and done it. Yeah, yeah. So it's possible, but, you know, the game was certainly, that the structure of the game was not necessarily pushing you in that direction, but it was possible for you to go in that direction if you wanted, which I think is what we ought to ask from these kinds of things. And and looking back at what I had done all the way back in 2007 and, and bringing it forward to today, I don't think that what we're seeing today could have been a viable option in the way that I had designed my game way back then, in part because the level of dispersion and irregularity that we're seeing in the conflict is not something that was even available in the array of forces that I had put in the Orange Crush game. Some of what we're seeing was available through the the card play, the command cards that were available in the game. Certainly the Russian kinetic forces were, were available and present in the game. Although again, the orders of battle are 15 years out of date, but the, the, the Russian forces, their dependence on roads and their limited logistics projection capability was all present. And, and that part of it was largely correct. The Ukraine, the, the, the separatists as they appear in the game, have far more organized forces than they've ever demonstrated a capability of fielding so far. Similarly, the Ukrainian government forces in the in, in the original Orange Crush game are vastly overstrength and and over present. I mean, there there are there are far more formations present in the game than I think. The, the Ukrainians could ever field in reality, certainly today. The NATO contingent in mine, again, based on the storyline I developed, yeah, that, that's still plausible that you could put into play. NATO's not riding to the rescue at this point. They, they're, they're not. They're not going to start a shooting war between NATO and the Russians. And and I, I, Brian, back to the thing that you've said, you know, can't see the future. I'm not a freaking wizard. I, I, you know, it, it feels safe to say that as we are recording this on the 1st of March, who knows where we're going to be in 10 days. Um, but I sure hope not. <laughs> I guess, I guess there's one more thing that I wanted to say that, you know, I couldn't have predicted in 2014. In the 2014 game, I had uh, some event cards and one of the event cards was uh, hashtag United for Ukraine. A U.S. State Department spokesperson sends a selfie with a message of support for Ukraine over Twitter. No game effect. And that U.S. State Department spokesperson was Jen Psaki, who is now 
President Biden's main main press person. I thought that uh, when I saw that picture of her with the selfie and the yellow dress, I thought, oh, she has no more career. But uh, here she is. She's main spokesperson for President Biden. You know, eight years Ooh, later. That's, world. that's that's actually kind of funny. So no, no way I could have predicted that. <laughs> Life imitating art, so yeah. to speak. All right, Mike, you you spoke the least on this this podcast, so you get to close oh. us out here. Final thought on this topic. It's final thought is there's so many different ways you can go with this, right? I mean, it's like I said, this is what we're seeing now is like three different games in one, or or really massive game that that I don't think anybody would ever try to actually tackle, at least not solo, right? Or even yeah. just two people, it, it it just would be too unwieldy. So hopefully it gives a lot of the hobbyists a big wake up call to understanding that hey, logistics does matter. You know, historically there are scenarios where one side just has not really much chance to win. Yeah. You know, well, and sometimes think... those scenarios, it's it. it, it all I was going to say is sometimes you know from a for a scenario designer. You know, think about that and say, okay, somebody can't win, but what happens if you hold out for another three hours? Does that have any impact to what happened the next day or later that day type deal? Or if you inflicted enough casualties, right? Yeah. Well, I, I think it's the difference between winning versus not losing. And sometimes not losing is is sufficient. You know, where, where you're describing sometimes it's almost sort of multiple games in one. That That's almost one of Rex's mega games, right? Where I say Rex, like there's plenty of people that do them. Rex is the friend of the program that does a bunch of them. Where you have multiple layered games that all interact with each other in there. Um, Brian, you played the Norks in one of those mega games. Yes, that's the most intense four hours of my life, really, or, or some some of the most intense hours. I didn't dare move from my chair because if, if I'd taken a bathroom break, I would have been deposed when I came back. <laughs> uh, that was actually a, a co-effort of Rex and Jim Wallman, um, the uh, British fellow who puts these things on. And uh, yeah, those are very intense uh, experiences. Yeah, yeah. So as an audience, thank you for indulging us in, in this, this bit of, uh, quite frankly, game design navel gazing <laughs> that we've done here a bit tonight. But Brian, thank you for joining on, on relatively short notice from when we decided to pull this together to when we're actually recording it wasn't but maybe 18 hours in the conversation so uh, no problem i'm always ready to run off at the mouth yeah. and i'm ready to admit when i'm wrong i'm not too big <laughs> of that but I, I definitely appreciate you making the time to join us tonight and mike same thing i i appreciate you making the time to join us and and especially for asking good questions through social media and actually having a good productive meaningful interesting conversation on social media which we get so little of these days even uh, if i stumbled into it right yeah you know what sometimes <laughs> It happens, man. It's totally cool. We yep. for, for folks that are asking, like this is the, this is the Twitter link that's right below this episode, right? That that that's what you're looking at there. Click into that and try and follow the the branching of the conversation as it goes forward as best you can. But that's that's the conversation that we're talking about is is the one that's linked right there uh, on this page. So um, 
I, I hope you've been able to get something out of this and enjoy it. And I hope that, um, look, it, it would be awesome if between the time we recorded this and the time it goes live, you know, everything stopped and the shooting stopped and the war stopped and everybody went back to planting days. It, it's not going to happen. Like, I, I feel confident in saying that in the three and a half days between us recording this and people listening to it, that, that shit hasn't cleaned itself up. It'd be nice. That would be the one complete overhaul of what we've done that I would be perfectly happy living with. We're not trying to predict the future. And and I think all three of us sort of agreed to that coming into this. We're not trying to predict the future. We're trying to sort of see where our older predictions might have held up or not. And that's really what, what this conversation was intended to be more about. Um, audience, hope you enjoyed it. And we'll, we'll I, I promise we will try to be more goofy in a future podcast and get back to just having fun and being a little less serious about, you know, things in the real world that are already way too serious as it is. Uh, thanks for listening and, and have a beautiful morning, evening, afternoon, daytime, nighttime, whatever it is when you're listening to this. And we'll catch you next time on another episode of Mention and Dispatches. Thank you.